Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Annie, and today Turtle is going to be our producer, which is going to be a new change. Yeah. So we got it. I'm going to do it by myself. And I have a very, very special guest today who we listened in our second episode. Was your mom? Mm, no. Second? I, don't, I don't even remember what episode. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been meaning. Our first interview. Our, yeah, our first interview. So I decided um, we've had some new changes in our lives and some free time. And so today we're going to have my mom, Anna Whiting Sorrell, is going to be our very, very fun. And it's going to be interesting. We've we've had a tough, tough kind of go for the last couple weeks. So um, this is going to be fun for both of us because... I know that I know a lot about the cool stuff that my mom has done, um, mostly around healthcare and kind of how that plays into tribal politics as well as state and federal politics. And also we're going to touch base on her being raised in an alcoholic family and her breaking that change and for me to allow to be where I am. Um, if she wouldn't have taken those steps, I wouldn't be where I am. And so I'm very, very thankful that I get to interview my mom today. If she's going to say anything. <laughs> well, I'm really thankful that you're here and um, that I'm a part of you and Turtle's big adventure. I know nothing about podcasts and um, the ones that I've listened to, I have been so impressed with how grown up my baby has become. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm the baby. I am. I'm the baby of the family. <laughs> um, okay, so I think we're just going to kind of jump into it. And I'm going to just kind of have a free conversation. I have a few questions laid out, but um, I think it's just going to kind of be free flowing and we're going to see how it goes. Um, so one thing that I know has affected a lot of indigenous communities is uh, really historic traumas in the form of alcoholism. And you have broken that mold of your family um, where you have had a, a pretty tough, tough kind of family enter in, in your family where alcoholism is, is pretty prevalent. And I want to know how you decided to break that mold. So I was very fortunate um, in alcoholic homes. There are certain roles that the children play. And, um, you know, it's played out in very different ways. And um, my older sister, Rhonda, was very, very responsible and took care. And on, in many ways, I am my sister, Rhonda, mm -hmm. much more than my mother and my father. Um, and then I had a, a sister named Cheryl. Cheryl was um, really, really smart. She loved studying um, racism and um, Abraham Lincoln, studied the Civil War, but she was very, very isolated, mm -hmm. which is another role that um, children in alcoholic families play. And then my younger sister, Terry, um, was very rebellious. The fourth, third role of an, in an alcoholic family um, from the day she was born. We recently lost my sister, Terry. And one of the stories told at the service was when she was um, getting going to um, be born, uh, my mom and my aunt had to take a cab to the hospital because, you know, my mom didn't drive. Neither one of them drove. And uh, they literally were chased by a pack of wild horses. Um, 
And so Terry played that out throughout her 56 years. Mm-hmm. Um, that left me being the caretaker or the invisible child. Um, and so what that meant in, in, our, in our family dynamics was I just worked harder, kept my head down, tried to make things better um, for my mom. My mom also suffered from mental illness and um, was later dis- um, diagnosed with um, bipolar disease. And for many, many years, she um, medicated her mental illness with alcohol. Uh, and so, you know, um, through the years, that role that I played, um, I I was able to be successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks good to the world when you're trying to take care of people yeah. and you're busy taking care of other people's needs and you're just always trying to do better. Yeah. Um, and and so, you know, that that led me to get a. Uh, I was at the top of my class, an outstanding teenager of America um, in high school. I was, um, um, you know, I was a Rhodes Scholar candidate, represented Montana in in the whole selection process, one of the most prestigious awards that college students get. Um, And... And so I've always tried to do better. And I think oftentimes, and especially now in this new world that I'm in, um, I, I did that out of the dysfunction of the alcoholic of our alcoholic family. So I taught school for three years, realized I didn't want to be bossed around by high school kids, and um, wrote grants and did that. But I eventually got into a master's program at the University of Montana, mm-hmm. um, Worked really hard, first woman, to, first woman, and Indian to be a TA for the political science department at the University of Montana. Um, I was a I was a real anomaly to them because I wasn't a feminist, but then they couldn't figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly had very liberal beliefs and played them out in my work and my study. Um, got done with my coursework really fast. Um, asked that I take my my oral exam. Um, that is a requirement of the master's program. Um, five days after I finished my last required class, interviewed for a job on that Friday, and Monday started work for the tribe's alcohol program. I went through that history because it was just by happenstance I applied for that administrative job, but that administrative job forced me to look at my own um, interaction with addiction and and addiction is more than just alcohol it is also you know drug addiction and we get addicted to many different things in our lives um as i started that job uh i i was really a young educated indian woman and i wasn't a recovering alcoholic or drug addict and so there was a lot of things that were um people didn't think i should have that job um, but I was very fortunate to have some really, really solid, important people help me and guide me. And one of the things that we learned was this whole idea that families and communities and our tribes are really um, engaged in the alcoholism. It's not just the person using, mm-hmm. but all of us learn different behaviors to survive. And there has to be recovery for all of us. Um, we sometimes like to focus and blame the person who is the addict, 
when really we need to think about what our own behavior is and how do we play into that. I got a wonderful chance to be with some really wonderful people at a national conference and um, got to identify the fact that um, Native Americans and in our communities, um, we're, we all suffer. None of us are able to get away from uh, how we have been impacted by the dysfunction of that alcoholism and what that has meant and got to start a national organization called the National Association for Native American Children of Alcoholics. And that really led me to understand what historic trauma is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that I learned a lot more than I think I have, uh, or maybe I just kind of forgot. Um, so I have had a very different upbringing than you did which kind of put my education at the forefront because you put your education at the forefront and so you have always been kind of my leader in terms of educational standpoints and really kind of how I handle my own dysfunctions and historic traumas in my own life and so while I have you as a leader, I think that we have talked about this before, but I want to know who influenced your thinking in kind of your own practices and, and kind of who helped you become the leader that you are today in, in kind of multiple areas. Well, I, I think that, you know, um, we lived in Missoula and... And so that meant we were kind of the vacation spot for my mom's family. Her, you know, my mom is is a McDonald, and the McDonalds, um, you know, they were they went to they were veterans and they were, um, but they also really, really, truly believed in education. And while my mom didn't graduate from high school, she just really insisted. Um, that she that her girls um, have an education. I I I think back on that and I think about how difficult that was, because she was also very very scared to get into the public school system, mm -hmm. and so she chose to say that her girls had to do that, um, but we had to really do it on our own. And so on, on a level, my mom was probably the most important, but certainly I had an uncle, Charlie, Charlie McDonald, and he was this, um, you know, older guy. And, and for some reason, he really took me under his wing. He was, you know, someone that was really, really important in my life. Charlie served on the first tribal council for the Confederate Salish and Kootenai tribes when we organized under the Indian Reorganization Act. Uh, one of the things he told me was, um, you know, the very first thing that they did was to make sure that the tribe had a burial benefit for the tribal members, recognizing how important that um, death ritual is for our people. Charlie was a kind of guy that he would teach you lessons, but he wasn't like, okay, now you're going to learn this. You just had to sit and listen and um I would, I learned really early on that it was so, I was so fortunate to go sit with him, but I also couldn't do it, run in and, mm -hmm. and like, I like to run in really quick and be done, ask my question, run out. It had to be a, a long conversation that he yeah. really steered. 
Um, the other person that had the biggest impact on my life was some another big gruff guy named Bearhead, um, Bearhead Swaney. My mom was an only child, and um, her father left them very early, and her mom had um, polio and also suffered um, from addiction and mental illness. And um, and so she was raised with the Swaneys, with Bearhead Swaney and Opal and Eileen and Bill and Doogie and all of them, and they kind of they looked at her as their younger sister. And um, while everybody claims to be Bearhead's favorite, I was. <laughs> and that's because of Christmas breakfast. I know that because every <laughs> Christmas uh, I loved um, biscuits and gravy, and he'd make them for me and nobody else. <laughs> And that's so funny because I dislike biscuits and gravy a lot. <laughs> I don't really like breakfast. I never eat it, but it's my, probably my favorite breakfast. Oh, man. I just I'm, I can't get into breakfast food. Cereal is kind of my, my limit. Like, and you know why? Because you ate cereal yeah. every morning when you were a kid. <laughs> milk kind of grosses me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I kind of, I'm not really a milk fan anymore, but I still like cereal. <laughs> um. Okay, so having these really strong male figures, um, Jane Milton Moss, who is one of your closest friends, and my aunt, I'm going to call her my aunt, (laughs) um, focuses a lot on how men today feel like they don't have a place, and how, how can you give advice to men today from the great mentors that you had in your past? I, I, the one of the leaders, um, when we were um, forming the Nanakoa, it's called, and many people are aware of Nanakoa across the country, but um, Jane was what I would call my most important, one of my most important mentors, um, she is an international um, trainer and facilitator and in really looking at historic trauma from a Native perspective and then being able to apply that to other situations across the world, whether that be in Germany or Spain. And um, and, and so I, I do think that as a part of the trauma that we as Indian people have gone through, is that the role of Indian men has been taken away. And and yet the role of Indian women has had to be bigger. Um, and I say that because, you know, Bearhead used to laugh and say, um, oh, I'm going to go and protect you from the wild things that are out <laughs> in the world today. And we'd all laugh, you know, because they they took that that role away of being our protectors as women mm-hmm. they took away men's role as um being hunters they gave us commodities instead and they wouldn't they wouldn't let us be the traditional gatherers and hunters that we as um salish people were and and so after you know generations of men not really not being our protectors and our providers, Indian women have stepped up. I really think that we as Indian women need to figure out how do we empower men back to that role. Um, mm-hmm. and, and yet 
all roles have changed. And, and, you know, as Indian women, as women in this country, you know, we are all trying to sort through how, what is our role now? And because there's a much different way in which we parent, in which we converse, in which we do, you know, cook or mm-hmm. pay bills, all of that. And so we're all trying to find a different balance in in our roles as males and females and all of the different generations. Mm-hmm. So kind of thinking and looking back at where your roles have landed you now, kind of the first one is working for the alcohol program for the tribe, but then kind of the larger political scale was working for John Kerry, right, on his campaign and kind of really putting your kind of indigenous focus, right? Is that mm-hmm. what you, you did for him? You kind of helped him on getting native votes, kind of what he needed to do to empower native people to go out and vote. And, oh, that was when I was 12, 10, 14, 12, 14, 2004. So 2000. Yeah, I was 14. Mm-hmm. And so while I was, while we were figuring out our own relationship you were looking at something much bigger than just your role as a mother, your role as a wife, your role as a sister. You were looking at your role as a community and kind of really, and and broader than that, kind of your role as the United States, you know. And I have always been curious on what made you to decide to kind of take that big step from Ronan, Montana, to Washington, D.C. So I, um, you know, I, I, I spent about eight years running the tribe's alcohol program, and it eventually really wanted to focus on prevention. That, that while we wanted to, to, to ensure that those people that had an addiction um, were taken care of and that they got to move towards recovery, and we also wanted to make sure that families um, got recovery and, and you know, that, that, that this was a whole systemic change that needed to happen mm-hmm. um, for the individual, the family, the community, and the tribe overall. I eventually wrote my um, thesis on that. I had a professional paper to get my master's in public administration. And after 10 years of taking notes and researching, um, wrote a thesis about how Um, true recovery comes when the whole community and tribe recovers. Um, During that time, I was appointed to be on President Clinton's, an appointment by President Bill Clinton, to be on his National Substance Abuse Prevention Advisory Board. I also... I also then took a different role on for the tribe. Um, I was asked to consolidate the healthcare delivery system into a single delivery system under Public Law 93638, Indian Self-Determination. That allows the tribe to take on the services that the federal government in IHS or BIA previously provided. So I really... Um, got to expand what I was doing from substance abuse to overall healthcare delivery. And then um, one day I came back from a meeting in Washington, D.C., and um, 
the chairman, Mickey Pablo, said, oh, by the way, we also want you to bring the services of the BIA under a self-governance compact. Um, back in those days, they could have you have <laughs> other duties as assigned. And, and so I did that. And I then got to spend a significant part of my time really looking at how do tribal governments assert their, their self-determination through the public law 93638. Um, and, you know, CSKT is one of the most advanced tribes in assuming those functions of the federal government. In addition to IHS and BIA functions, I was also assigned to really look at how the tribes might manage the National Bison Range, um, which would be a totally different kind of agreement with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So I had this opportunity to, to live at home, um, to be very much involved in our tribal government and what tribal government authorities empowers, how to operate those programs, what needed to be done to really have good program management when we took on those services. Mm -hmm. uh, under um, Title V of the Self-Determination Acts, the tribes get to redesign the programs um, they don't have a scope of work that they have to follow. So I got to be involved in all of that. That led me to have, um, a, to be out there in Indian country ac across the country, served on a number of advisory boards and committees um, that included every tribe in the country or a lot of tribes in the country. And so in 2004, I uh, I was, you know, in my mid-40s, I'd worked for the tribe for almost 25 years, and I really had to decide, did I want to spend my entire career and be a 45-year tribal employee, or did I want to, um, was now the time for me to take a different approach? Um, I got a phone call asking me to join the John Kerry campaign, came and talked to you and your dad mm -hmm. and said, what do you guys think? And you were like, yeah, it's time to do something different. And I got on a plane without even really knowing where I was going to stay or what I was going to do. And um, I just took this big chance to to do that mm -hmm. in June of 2004. Yeah. I mean, I said do it and, and I'm, I'm glad that I definitely did it. It, made me spend a lot more time with dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it really did build a yeah. whole different relationship. And, and, and it forced you and I, as a mother and a daughter, to have a very different relationship. Mm -hmm. um, you know, after John Kerry lost the election, and, um, and then I was um, invited to join um, governor, the newly elected governor of Montana's staff, um, I know you and I had to have conversations about what did that mean, um, and I think that was that was really important. It was important for us. And but what the time with John Kerry taught me was, you know, that people in we in Indian country think that we are part of this country's agenda, mm -hmm. and oftentimes we're not even an afterthought. We we don't even exist. You know, one of the things that I pushed um, in the John Kerry campaign was every time he would talk about diversity in this country, he would say African-Americans, Asian-Americans, and Hispanics, and never include, you know, Native Americans. And 
And so I literally had to force my way to the table mm -hmm. and say, can he just say, and Native Americans, it doesn't take a second. And, and, you know, I mean, I had to, I had to pound that all the time that that was something that, that needed to be included. Um, I also got to teach them a little bit, you know, we, the, in, in a campaign, they, uh, they're down days when you won't make the news and, you know, those are kind of giveaway days. And so they decided to give a, to do a giveaway day, um, following the democratic convention, um, because they knew in battleground states, we as Indian people are the margin of victory. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted our vote, but they just assumed they were going to get it because most Indians are Democrat. Uh, and so my job was to make it very meaningful. Um, so I got to go, um, uh, they, they did a train ride and I, I got to be on the train with the Senator and his campaign as they went through New Mexico and Arizona. Um, and we learned that the Navajo nation was going to give Senator Kerry an Eagle feather. And I went in and talked to the powers that be and said, he can't accept an Eagle feather. And they were like, well, that's an insult. Why would you say that? And I said, because it's against the law. Um, Non-Indians cannot be in possession of eagle feathers. And, well, we don't believe that. And, and about an hour later, they came back to my desk and said, you're right. He can't. What are we going to do? And, and you know, and, and so it was like they hired me to really – you know, be incorporate Indian values and who I was as an Indian person into his campaign. And yet I had to force myself to have validity and, because they had these stereotypes that they believed in their head. And I had to break through those stereotypes. And, and that's a pattern I learned. I'm going to, I still fight today. Mm -hmm. And so the funny story in that is the Navajo Nation decided to give him a, 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 a woven rug instead. And so they said, Oh, okay, we, you know, we don't have to worry about that. So we get to the event. And the, it's a big, big gathering, bright red um, cliffs. And I mean, I've country totally different from us here. And, and it's 110 degrees. So I'm sitting in the <laughs> staff tent with a bottle of water. <laughs> And cell phones didn't work there because, you know, they don't always work in Indian country. Cell phones don't. And I get this panic. Oh, my gosh. They're going to have the senator pick up an eagle feather. Where are you? Get here right now. <laughs> and and I said, oh, it's fine. You know, um, one of the dancers dropped an eagle feather. John Kerry is a, a you know, a, a veteran. And so of course they would. So they're like, Oh my gosh, we can't have him touch it. We no, 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 it's going to be fine. And I mean, they literally had secret service on my arms, <laughs> carrying me to get there to stand next to him. And, and I said, it's fine. He'll pick up the eagle feather and he'll give it to the head man dancer. Mm -hmm. That's all he's going to do. You have to be there and you have to take it. Okay. Okay. So what transpired is he picked up the eagle feather, the head man dancer gave it, gave it to him, and they all went, how did you know that? And it's like, people don't understand mm -hmm. who we are. And while we are very different tribe by tribe, we also have some rituals that we can count on. Mm -hmm. And that's what really makes us strong. I think that that is what 
Turtle and I have talked about a lot is kind of how do you generalize indigenous values into like a criteria or indicators or really sciencey terms, you know, where you can kind of broadly scoped generalize a tribe. Because we are so individual that even here at CSKT, looking from Kootenays versus Salish and Ponderay, Ponderay and Salish are kind of similar. They're they're similar dialects of Salish, but but Kootenay and Salish. And so this idea of having um, kind of similar values is, is really important to understand. And that stems from oral traditions that have been passed down from generation to generations. And it's not necessarily plant-based or animal-based stories but it's more about the values and kind of like what they teach you and I've always kind of compared that to like bible how the bible is how you learn certain values from the bible um and it's passed down and there's different editions of the bible I'm not I'm not a a bible expert religion isn't really my forte but but that's kind of what I've explained to people is is this idea of um a value system of an honor system of respect and responsibility and reciprocity, the three R's that we have talked about before. And you have shown that a lot when it comes to healthcare in Montana and and not even in Montana, but Montana and Wyoming and also multiple reservations across the country. And how, I guess my question to you then is how do you explain those values to non-Indigenous people who really don't understand and who think that tribes are the same, the same languages, that we have 564 tribes? No, 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 no. 567 tribe, federally recognized tribes. I I had to correct myself. And hopefully um, the little shell will get recognized in the next few days. If so, if Greg Gianforte gets on board with them, yeah. cool. It'll be five hundred sixty-eight. Yep, five hundred sixty-eight. We have to keep or count. Five hundred seventy-two. Oh yeah, there was multiple numbers that we couldn't find, <laughs> and I mean that's kind of what I've struggled with in school. Is we we have these indigenous allies that work with Turtle and I on on workshops and in classes. But they look at us as kind of this token Indian type in school where they don't understand that it's just basic values, but individual tribes are different. And and I know that I've struggled a lot with with explaining that to people who think that natives are just kind of this, this formulated system of being the same. So I would like to you know, really piggyback on what happened with Senator Kerry. And then as I transitioned to working for Governor Schweitzer, uh, I think we, um, we, we are unique and we're not better. We're not worse. We're just different. And, and so when people look in, they want to be us. And they 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 want to take, and I think the new word is appropriate our mm-hmm. our our gifts, our who we are, and then make it their own, and and that's not appropriate. It's not right. You you know, and and what I love so so what happened 
after, you know, Senator Kerry got the eagle feather and they took it and all of that is, you know, supposedly that was a throwaway day for the campaign. Mm -hmm. He got endorsed by the Navajo Nation and in um, Flagstaff a few hours later. When I woke up on Monday morning, I woke up to the sound of drum beats on the Today Show. <laughs> Katie Couric, I believe it was Katie Couric then, it was such a big deal. It was the lead-off story on the Today Show. And all I could think to myself, because I had no one else to talk to, is, oh, well, that was a, maybe not a throwaway because that was so unique in the world that it was the lead story on the Today Show on a Monday morning. Uh, what I what I learned from from working with with Brian Schweitzer, the governor, when he brought me on, I wanted to be naive enough to think that I he didn't hire me because I was Indian. He uh, appointed me because I had a competitive resume. Yeah. And I do. I have a competitive resume. I have as good a resume as anybody in that, that are, were in political circles at that time. And I didn't want to be the token Indian in his, in his administration. And, and so I, you know, went pretty forcefully and said to them, you know, if you're hiring me because I'm the Indian, then hire somebody else. And they're like, no, you know, we really want you to be a part of this administration. What they didn't know and what I didn't know is what that truly meant. Because there'd never been in Montana an Indian person that was now going to be in the inner circle of of politics of policy making of legislative of budgeting and 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 so we had some um push and pulls i'd say um you know the very first day that of the inauguration um the first thing we did gene and i when i went into my office was put up a picture of um john and Bobby Kennedy, and he smudged the office, my office. Mm -hmm. And people came in and were thinking maybe we were doing something illegal. <laughs> and um, when we explained it, Brian, actually, the governor, said, will you come and do that for the house? As my family now moves into this mm -hmm. residence, we would really like to have it cleaned. Um, that became a part of who we were. He didn't say, teach me how to do it, and I'm going to do it. He really yeah. honored that it was a um, a ceremony, a ritual, something that we did that that was important, and he had faith in it. I, I think what, what, what happens sometimes is we have people who come in and want to take our rituals and make them theirs and then maybe even profit from it. And and that's wrong. And so then we will say, no, I'm not sharing anymore. I don't want to. And so, and then we'll, we as Indian people will say, well, we want you to be culturally competent with who we are. I don't. I don't want people to be culturally competent. I want them to be respectful of who I am, just as I will be respectful of who they are. But I'm not going to take on their their rituals to be mine. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I'm I'm saying this very well, but one of the things that I have learned is that if you teach people in a good way and you educate them and and most importantly if you walk that 
if you do that and you and you you communicate and teach along the way their opportunity to honor who you are is greater mm-hmm. and and you know and 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 I've had to learn that I have my own way of maybe of my own racism my own prejudice um I'm going to say this out loud and it's probably sacrilegious, but I don't like the sound of bagpipes and I I don't. And, 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 and for Irish Scottish people, and I'm yeah. Scottish. I mean, I, yeah. Angus MacDonald was, it's like fingers on a nail board to me and on a blackboard to me. And, and, um, and, and so I don't, I, we all have those and mm-hmm. and so that doesn't mean i have something i love irish people and scottish people i i do so we all have to figure out a way to honor each other and and so rather than people you know when i was growing up we had to be culturally sensitive and then we became culturally competent and no i want you to honor who i am as an indian person when when people say anna you walk in two worlds I say, oh, I hope that's not true. I hope I walk in a world that I am who I am. I don't want to change when I'm in the Indian world mm-hmm. and when I'm, you know, I am who I am there. And I'm the same person I am when I am sitting in a boardroom with all white men. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes that was really hard in some of the places that I was in. I somehow made my way to be the inner circle of a governor of a state. In that inner circle was a male chief of staff, a male policy advisor, a male budget director, and the governor and the lieutenant governor. All males, all beautiful blue eyes. And and sometimes I would look around and go, what happened here and what are you doing? So in my heart and in that little girl mm-hmm. who was raised by an alcoholic mom, I would think you're they're gonna find out who you are and they're not they're gonna dismiss you. Mm-hmm. And so I always had this uneasiness about who I was based on my own trauma. You know, my grandma Mabel dying of a drug overdose at forty two. Um, all of the trauma in our life, my mom who struggled, um, and I would look around and go, what are you doing here? But I could never let people know that. I had to have that sense of confidence because I also knew that my mom wanted me to walk through those governor's doors with that sense of confidence. Mm -hmm. And so I'd look in that room and there would be those people, those men, and I would have to feel like, I I was representing much more than just Anna Whiting Sorrell. I, I I took on saying, no, for the first time Indian people are sitting at this table. Women mm-hmm. in Montana are sitting at this table. And and so I'd have to think about what I said and how I said it. Um and I think sometimes a woman's voice, just the tone we use, is different. Um I have a higher tone. I might be squeaky. I am passionate and and I might talk too fast and I talk too loud and I talk, you know, mm-hmm. and all of those things that we as women bring to the table and the five men would go. And one day I just remember saying out loud to him, I'm going to talk slow 
I'm going to talk low. Because I don't want you to hear your wife say and take out the garbage. This is really important what I want to contribute. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think they all looked up and they were shocked. And they said, do you really think that happens? I know it happens. And I know some of the words I use are different because we in Indian country use some words different. When we talk about going to the center, it doesn't mean the center of a circle. It means going to the health center or the senior citizen center or the community center. It's a location for us in a very different way. If you haven't had the chance to be in a non-Indian world and the ability to analyze what's different for them and what's different for us as Indian people, you can't teach back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, Earlier on, I said, um, I think that um, that we as Indian people forget that we we aren't a part of people's lives. They don't even know we exist. They don't know that what we contribute in the world today. And so for them to understand and allow us to be a meaningful part, we have to even get a place at the table. And I'm glad that you said that because you ended up doing that. So you worked for Schweitzer for, in his little inner circle for eight years, eight years. And then you became the director of DPHHS for the state of Montana. During that eight years I was part of, yeah. And then from that, using and kind of stepping forward and making sure that you had your indigenous values at the forefront you helped create Healthy Montana Kids. Yes. And that alone serves how many, how many tribal kids in Montana? Well, Healthy Montana Kids um, serves 100,000 kids in Montana. And if you think about what the Montana Medicaid program, another program that I, I got to um, oversee, about 25% of the Montana Medicaid program are indigenous people. So you can, you know, you, you know, I'm, I don't know the exact number anymore, mm -hmm. um, but it was probably about 25%. So. so how did people kind of in your little inner circle think about this idea of healthy Montana kids? Well, like, you know, I, what I'd like to, to talk about is that, um, you know, I said that I thought Schweitzer hired me because I had a competitive resume, not because I was Indian. Mm -hmm. I very early on recognized that um, Governor Schweitzer was brilliant, and he was a master politician. And his chief of staff had worked really hard in Indian country in the whole egg field. And and so while they didn't hire me to do the Indian issues, they hired other people to do that they hired me because they knew that in Montana, Indians had to be a part of the conversation. And so they allowed me to, I almost want to say, infiltrate that. that mm -hmm. Schweitzer never wanted to be Indian. He was, he was very respectful. His mom taught him to always have you know, our backs um, from when he was a little boy when and some Indian kids came to their school, and I learned that after his mom had died. Um, 
and and so you know my my effort in the governor's office which which they didn't have to let me do and they did was to be an indian person at the table and sometimes it was difficult mm -hmm. because i was pushing them in ways that they didn't want to be pushed um you know for example they appointed someone to be on the board of regents that oversees the Montana University system. And they called me and said, oh, we forgot to ask her tribe if she could be appointed. And I looked at him and said, well, what if her tribe says no? Yeah. Are we not going to appoint her? And I said, and who do non-Indians get approval from? And they were like, well, yeah, but you guys don't know. I mean, we as Indian people need to figure out how do we have our own voice and not give all of our power over to our tribal membership. We're also citizens of the state, citizens of this country, and we need to have a voice in those circles as well. Mm -hmm. um, while we belong to our tribe in a very important, important way, um, we don't also need permission always which has gotten me in trouble. And and so there have been times when I've I've I I had to really acknowledge that the reason that I was a member of that inner circle was I could say things to Indians mm -hmm. that non-Indians could never say. And you know, I could stand up and say you want to be a part of the decision making and you want to be consulted, that means you have to show up. And no non-Indian could say that to tribal leaders. Um, I remember walking out of the governor's office one day saying, oh, I get it now. Um, I'm going to be the one to do that because that's appropriate, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and that's important that when you're sitting at that table, you have a responsibility and an accountability, not only to the tribes, but to the people that you work for. And how do you navigate that role, that role and that road? I think that brings up another board that you're on that I'm going to fast forward a, a few years now. Um, so you just recently got appointed to the board of directors of the ACLU of Montana. And you're the only, are you the only native on that board? Um, I think um, there was another, he resigned. And so how, how then is that the same or is it kind of different than being in a very, very political inner circle versus the ACLU, which is very, very forward thinking and kind of really wanting to do um, minority. Well, they protect civil rights. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, people whose civil rights are most at risk are disenfranchised communities gays, lesbians, minority groups, uh, you know, just, um, and so when one of the things that as I have aged is that I don't want to get pigeonholed into these, you know, I've done a lot of work in a lot mm -hmm. of different areas and healthcare is certainly my passion. Um, but I also have other, um, knowledge and gifts that I wanted to share. So when I was approached to join the um, American Civil Liberties Union of Montana, I, I really took that on. I have been a member for about a year now, and um, 
um, at our last meeting, they um, they have taken on working in indigenous communities, and they really are leading the way in the country, ACLU of Montana, to really in, include mm-hmm. Indian people, whether that's the um, because of the DAPL and and they have been very supportive of of the um, work that people have been the water protectors and such. Um, and so it was really intriguing to me that I I was asked to be a part of this board. And I looked around the room and there are old people and young people and everything in every age in between. There are um, overweight people and there are skinny people. There are um, every race that you can imagine. Uh, there are... Um, all genders and you know i'm really learning about gender identity and what that means uh but but the meetings feel very similar to being at a board meeting for that's all white male mm-hmm. and and i really was struggling with that you know it's like i don't understand how this group of really well-intentioned really good people and yet we were having difficulty on, honoring and respecting all of the diversity that was in that group. So at our last meeting, we had um, a video that an Asian American woman showed us about microaggression and how sometimes people with the best intentions may use uh, our own culture against us. Mm-hmm. And and I, as uh, you probably um, know, Kate, um, I cry. I'm a crier. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I do. Uh, Schweitzer used to say she cries when she's happy, when she's sad, when she's good, when she's bad. <laughs> she just, you know, we just work through her crying. We as women do that. It's our natural reaction. And, and because we're trying to fit into a different world, we really hide that that natural response. So I watched this video. And then at the end, with, you know, the whole board... I listened to the conversation of these wonderful, wonderful people, and it made no sense to me. And and I cried. I just cried. And and they were like, and I, but they were worried. And and I said, I I don't understand. When I look around this room, why this feels so foreign? Why this feels so familiar to me, being in a white world, mm-hmm. but so foreign to me as an Indian person? that if we were all sitting around a table and we were all Indian, we wouldn't do it this way. And I would guess that all of you that are here that have very different worlds wouldn't do it this way. Why can't we figure out how do we make this board fit into this diversity that we have and maximize it, but we have to do it in a different way. Mm -hmm. And there was an African-American gentleman who said, oh, Sister, yes, I've wondered that too. Why is it that we we have conformed to this format that is really foreign to who we are and who we care about and who we're trying to serve? And so they really took on looking at how we as a board are going to function different. Like maybe that will mean we won't have an agenda that is spelled out minute by minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we'll allow for there really to be the development of relationships 
as opposed to staying only on the topic. Um, and God forbid, we may not use Robert's Rules of Order. And and it was shocking to people. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the most diverse group were like, oh, okay. And how do we eat? And how do we let people sit at the table? You know, just they are allowing me to question every part of that so that we really can figure out how to be different, how to honor who we are, and yet get the business done. <laughs> oh, I'm a get the business done kind of girl. I want to get that business done. But you can do it in a way that really honors and respects who each of us are and what we bring to the table. I think that that's something that Turtle and I have talked about a lot as we, during our research project, has have presented in front of, I presented in front of our tribal council. Um, Turtle has presented not only in front of the elders committee and then the, the Salish culture committee, he also has presented in front of the Kootenai culture committee. And we have noticed that as well is this, this kind of colonial setup where it necessarily wouldn't be how we would have done it in the past and kind of really moving forward in that. And I think that I know that I have said this multiple times that I've quoted you in multiple workshops that I've led across multiple states now, um, is really kind of making sure that you have a seat at the table and that you not only speak for yourself, your immediate family, in your community, but you also speak for all indigenous communities. Um, and we have the disadvantage of, of generational historic traumas that have really led us to not put ourselves in that spot at the table because of the reasons that you said and and really kind of moving past that is is what i hope to get in the future and i know that i had talked to you earlier about about this this last question that i'm going to ask you and i think that you're that it touches base on a positive way to move forward and the way that indigenous people across not only the united states or north america but really across the world um, and so I, I want to talk to you. I want you to answer the what are your three tips to being modern, uh, to being indigenous in the modern world? Wow. Um, I, I think that that is really the true question. And I think it is different for different generations. And why I have loved you and Turtle being a part of this podcast, because it has forced me to really think about where I am and what what does that mean? You know, what are the three tips that, that I would give? And and I I have really over the last two years would say this is a question that I have struggled with. I'm sixty one and a half. I have worked hard every day of my life since I was fourteen and a bus girl. Um, trying to, you know, fit in in Missoula, Montana. And and yet I think that in our culture, there must be a way in which as we age, we can transition to our next role. And, and it's time for me to transition. Mm -hmm. I have... Um, you know, I can write grants and I can get a lot of money and I I can um, write position descriptions and organization charts and 
and I can think about program design and I can categorize, I can do all of that work, but it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't think at this time in my life, I don't think it's the best way to use my education, my experience, my expertise, that as I get to this age, how do I teach you and Turtle how to do this work? I shouldn't be doing the work anymore. And you've taught me that, Kate, because you guys are taking it to a whole different level. What I have to contribute is a knowledge base, and yet there's there's no way in our culture to do that because my mom died at 58. My grandma died at 42. I don't have a role model to help me understand in this work world, how do I transfer what I have learned to you? I want to. Mm-hmm. I need support in that. So one of the tips that I would have you say is help <laughs> help that generation mm-hmm. identify what we need to do different and how can we get you the knowledge that we have without stifling you or saying you have to do it our way. I don't want you to do it the way that I did it. I walk through those governor's door with my high heels and nylons on every day, knowing I represented my grandma Liddy, my grandma Mabel, my mom. And that was really important that I stood on their shoulders and I represented them well and I did every day. But I was also representing you and and Esther and the next generation. So I want... To, to you know somehow i have to be able to transition what i did and let you take it and mold it mm-hmm. i loved our conversation about you saying mom we're not really called native americans anymore we're indigenous <laughs> and it's like well i've always said that and you help me understand what indigenous means in this world today you help me understand about decolonization I didn't I didn't know in our world we called it acculturation and assimilation and mm-hmm. and so you've taught me how to be able to use what I know and give that to you all. I think that's really really important that we sit together in conversations. We sit together with a cup of tea. You respect who I am. Don't laugh at me because I don't know how to use all this technology. You teach me how to do it. And then I can help transition what I learned sitting at those tables in a meaningful way to you all. Mm-hmm. Um, I I also, so that's number one. N- number two is I hope that I can figure out a way that you guys will not allow non-Indians to speak for Indian people anymore. I'm 61 years old, and when I know people with the absolute best intentions have researched and spent their life telling our story, I want to explode. You can't know what our story is if you haven't, if you aren't us. And and Indians have allowed really good intentioned people to tell our story. 
and they can't. We have to tell our own story. We have to figure out podcasts or all of these conversations where Indians are teaching Indians. And and we're going to fail. We're going to do it wrong. But we will never do it right if we don't get a chance. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so in the last month when I have really changed who I am, what I what I'm doing, not who I am, but how I want to be in the world. It's because I want that voice. I want to be able to tell my story mm-hmm. in my voice. And the third thing, we have to heal from the trauma that we are at. And the only way you can heal from it is to heal yourself. I'm 61 years old. And I realize that I am still trying as hard as I can to quit being that little girl trying to please her mom who had addiction and mental illness, that I'm still that invisible little girl putting her head down, working hard, working hard, working hard, and working harder, and sometimes forgetting to say thank you or to appreciate what's around me. And and I have led a national movement in recovery you know, I was one of the first people talking about high, healing your inner child. And and it, and it's just now that I'm really realizing that I have to continue doing my own healing work. And when I do my healing work, that allows my family to do their healing work. Mm-hmm. My little Esther, <laughs> you know, and yeah. when she realized how sad I was when my sister died... She kept her eye on me for a week. I could see her. She'd come and stand next to me. She'd sit on my lap. Not in a bad way, but really knowing that comfort comes from multiple generations. So we have to acknowledge whatever trauma we have. We need to give that trauma voice. We need Mm -hmm. to say it out loud. And then we need to fill it up with our culture. We have fill it up with who we are as Indian people. The most important thing that we did in that week of sadness with my sister Terry's death was going and feeding people, giving gifts, teaching about the canoe, and understanding that water is sacred to us as Indian people. And I could do that because I knew that I had done what I needed to do with my sister in her death. My sister wasn't an enrolled member of this tribe, and she suffered with that every day. And yet we got to honor our rituals. We we got to talk to her, and we got to help her dress and washed her in rose water. I got to put on my buckskin to show that I'm grieving. I got to cut my hair, and I got to give that voice. I got to give her voice, and now I get to fill, fill that up. And once you do that, once you make that commitment, then you can give it to other people. And until you do that, you can't give it away. Well, uh, uh, that was pretty powerful. I'm just going to, I think, (laughs) Um, I mean, as you can tell, uh, a lot of the stuff that I have talked about on the podcast, I have 100% learned from my mom. Um. I am very, very happy that I was able to finally have you on the podcast. <laughs> I know we have talked about it a lot. Um, and so I think we're just going to kind of 
I don't know what to say now because it was kind of that <laughs> thing that, you know, where somebody does a really good speech and you're just like, how do I follow that up? Yeah, every good speech is followed by speechlessness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to quickly say that I'm extremely thankful that you came on this show. And while it's a step out of your comfort zone, I know that we had talked about how you didn't understand what a podcast was and kind of really explaining it to you. It is important to me, and it really means a lot to me that you stepped out of your comfort zone to get into my comfort zone. And um, I'm also going to just say that I'm thankful for elementary teachers who put up with Esther and Maya and <laughs> Andrew, who we just got done with their Christmas concert. And extremely thankful the people who who really make our family lives better and and i want to say a couple of things in the public school we just had this great thing with maya and andrew and esther and they weren't gonna let us touch them oh yeah <laughs> and i'm not gonna do that mm -hmm. as a as a yaya in this world i want them to know I was there and how mm -hmm. proud I was and that Esther was wearing her Auntie Terry's earrings that you made for her Auntie Terry. It was as important as who we are as Indian people. Mm -hmm. That's about decolonizing the public school system when we insert who we are. I couldn't be prouder of you, Katie, and Turtle. I, I, I see you as the next step in who we are and I don't want to get in your way, but I also know I have things to contribute. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me. And we're just going to end the show because I'm about to cry. <laughs> <laughs> now we need Kleenex. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to download the podcast, you can find us at any of the main platforms like iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And definitely leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps a ton. And it also helps us understand what people would like to hear more of. So we definitely appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And you can also find us at our WordPress page. And also on social media, right? Yep. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All at Indian Science Show. So NDN Science Show where you can let us know how we're doing or if you have an idea for the show yeah let us and know. we'll put out announcements for our releases as well as some other content we're working on trying to get some videos as well as uh -huh. do other different things so you can find out about all that on those places the social media but we also have a wordpress page and just like annie said it's at ndn science show and the spelling of it is N-D-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S-H-O-W.wordpress.com. That's IndianScienceShow.wordpress.com. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll catch you on the flip side.